I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. And today we're going to be looking over verses 47 through 57. Um, I was actually so pleased to hear the good news about Peggy that I forgot to um, put in prayer requests while we were praying uh, first for the Bacon family and Phil Bacon as they are um, seeking to plant a church in Hannibal, Missouri, Harvest Bible Church. And that is no easy task, so we do need to be praying for them. And also uh, for Ryan Howard, who uh, is uh, in Korea and who is looking for a good church. He's found a church. It's not reformed, uh, but he is hoping that um, it will be a good fit. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for both of those uh, brothers real quick as we are also preparing to come to God's word and learn more about how he worked through Joseph and how even affliction was used for good in his life. Let's go before the Lord now. O Sovereign Lord, we are so very thankful that you are the one who has given us the strength to follow you. You're the one who changed our hearts and made us willing to believe in the day of your power. And you have set our duties for us. We know we can trust in you and that we can continue to follow you even through times of hardship, times of sorrow. We know that you are still in charge. We do want to pray a prayer for our brothers uh, from the Anstead Men's Fellowship who have been with us uh, many a time. We think of Phil Bacon, we think of Ryan Howard, and we think of their families, Lord. We do want to pray particularly for the Bacons as they are seeking to uh, plant a solid church in the midst of Hannibal. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless their endeavors there, that you would strengthen their hands for the work, and you would cause them to bring in the sheaves, Lord, those uh, of your people who have not yet, O Lord, come to faith in you, but whom you knew from before the beginning of time. May they be used, Lord, in that wonderful process of ingathering, and may you bless them. Now, Lord, bless us in our understanding of your word. Make it fruitful. Help me to uh, show the delightsome qualities of Christ, Lord, to your people, and may I speak nothing that is not in keeping with your word. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Genesis 41, and as I said, I'm going to be reading verses 47 through the end of the chapter, 57. Mind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all lands, but in uh, all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, these seven years that they start out talking about were not ordinary years of uh, just fruitful harvest. These were bumper years, as they're sometimes called. We read the grain that he gathered in was as the sand of the sea. He gave up seeking to count how much he had. There was so much that they brought into the storehouses of Egypt. We also read that God not only granted prosperity to Egypt, just as he had said, he granted prosperity to Joseph and also increase. He gave him two sons, Manasseh, which means causing to forget in Hebrew, and Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful. And both of these were Hebrew names. Now, interestingly enough, we have the comment from uh, Joseph that it's a sign to him, the giving of these children in particular, that the years of affliction have been put away, that the years that uh, the locusts have eaten, uh, as Joel would put it, have been restored, and he has become fruitful. In fact, he says that uh, his sorrow, his longing for his father's house, which was with him for years and years, that, that awful loneliness, that desire to be back home again, even that has been quieted within his heart. Now he feels uh, in, one, uh, in, a, in a true sense at home where he is, even though he is not really at home, is he? After all, the promised land was the place that had been set apart for God's people. And all of God's people, going back all the way to Abraham, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, are questing for something more than just a strip of land in the ancient Near East. They're looking for the heavenly country. They're looking for the place where there is no more toil, no more labor, no more sickness, no more affliction. Joseph may have been doing well, but no doubt he had not forgotten that death stalks us all and that someday it would come for him. He was looking for a place where that would no longer reign. Ephraim's name uh, also indicated, though, that he recognized the hand of God in all of this. It wasn't just luck or fate or karma or whatever you want to call it that brought this about. God had engineered it from the very beginning. And therefore, all of the pain and the suffering, the loneliness, the evil that his brothers had done, the evil that Potiphar's wife had worked against him, all of it was worth it because God used it all to bring about good. Everything slotted into place. He could not have planned this for himself. He could not have put the elements in, in place. And that's something we need to remember. Often we pray, don't we? And then we don't receive what we ask for and we are discouraged. We act perhaps like God has made a mistake. I should have had this. But then looking back, it has often been the case in my life, and I'm sure it has in your life as well, that we see that if we had gotten what it was that we were asking God for, it would not have worked good for us. But that what he did was ultimately better, better for us, better for the church, better for the kingdom. Well, we will see also later how Joseph applies this in speaking with his family. I don't want to give it away. In chapter 50, there are some particularly wonderful verses about the sovereignty of God. But we see how Joseph did not allow bitterness to consume him. And don't let it consume you either. Brothers and sisters, often it's the case that when somebody does us wrong, that we harbor a grudge against them. Bitterness wells up in our heart and we stoke the fire of that grudge. We don't allow it to go out. We are always remembering it and we allow it to eat away at us. 
Robert Candlish, in his commentary, says of Joseph, he has undergone a discipline of obedience and patience such as admirably prepares his gracious spirit for the high office which he is to fulfill and the momentous functions he is to discharge. He understood that everything that happened in his life had to happen the way it did so that he would be prepared. So, for instance, that was the case with Moses as well. Moses' life, and he starts off, obviously, in Pharaoh's, uh, in Pharaoh's palace. He's raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and then he's driven out, and he has to flee into the wilderness of Midian. But on all of that, God was preparing him step by step, giving him wisdom and knowledge, giving him literacy in the uh, ways of the, the cultures of the ancient Near East, and then teaching him through the years of being a shepherd, patience and the ability to lead God's people. We see the same things happening in David through the afflictions that he goes through. Do you think, let me ask this, that your lives are so very different from those of the people we read about in the Bible? Do you believe that you can become an instrument in God's hands, after all that is what he wants you to be, without you having to go through the furnace? One of the things that I've always noticed about, uh, about pottery is, you know, the, uh, uh, the finished product that's come out of the kiln with its beautiful glaze and so on, its hardened uh, outside and so on, looks nothing like the flabby uh, piece of clay that we shaped and molded before it went through the fire of the kiln. You too, in order to become something useful, something beautiful, something hardened to the ways of the world, but not in a bad sense, not in that, that uh, emotionless turning away from things, but, but able to endure because you trust in the Lord, you'll need to go through the fires of affliction. Joseph did. We shouldn't expect any difference in our lives as well. Now, during the seven years of prosperity, there, there might be a tendency to forget the seven years that God had warned about. He had said, hadn't he, that they would go through seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of dearth. But in the midst of prosperity, who expects the dearth to really happen? After all, if we went back seven years ourselves from this point right now, it would take us all the way back to ancient history in 2015 when Barack Obama was still president. And who would have thought that in the intervening time, we would go through a time of plenty and then have the COVID crisis, then we would have the recession of, of 2022 that we're in the midst of, that our economy would shoot up like an arrow and then come down like a lawn dart. And so we find ourselves, you know, at, at the moment, looking at gas prices, for instance, of $4.81 a gallon, and we remember at the beginning of 2020, January 2020, it was $2.17. What a turnabout. Everything seems to have gone south. But would we have guessed that that was happening or going to happen in, say, 2018 or 2019? Would we have been ready for those things? Too often, we tend to act like the times of plenty that we are passing through at any particular time, the times of health, the times of, of goodness and so on, that they're our due. And we expect that they will never end, that everything will continue on as it has been at that point in time. Uh, a lot of people, therefore, sitting on a mountain, a literal mountain of grain, so much that it seems like the seashore, the sand of the seashore, they might say to themselves as they are looking at these abundant harvests coming in year after year, storing this is silly. 
What on earth are we doing this for? This year's harvest was record-breaking. And the one before that was record-breaking as well. It seems to be going on and on. Why are we spending our energy storing it when we could be eating ourselves full, enjoying ourselves, and then selling the, the excess to the nations around us, taking in gold instead of socking it away in storehouses? We have no reason not to expect an even richer harvest next year. And what are we going to, are we going to put all of our dependence upon the, the dreams of Pharaoh? These are dreams. You have dreams and so on. I mean, if we, if we really depended upon our dreams, we, we'd all be checking the beds on, uh, you know, every night, under, looking underneath them for monsters and things like that. We'd never go up on the roof for fear that we would fall and, and things like that. That's, it, it's silly to depend upon on dreams, even if this guy Joseph says that they were a word from God. And sometimes we are willing to look, aren't we, to the word of God for the, for the prosperity part. But then when it comes to the part about the dearth, about the lack and, and the times of difficulty, uh, we're not so happy to hear about that. We want to read the Bible for the good things, but not the bad things. And so it might have been very tempting to simply say, well, you know, I'll store up a little, maybe. But, you know, I, I think this is going to go on. It's gone on for six years. Why wouldn't it go on for eight? And so on. Many people do fail to save when there is plenty. Others act like their years of, of health and youth will never end. It's very common here in Fayetteville. I meet this, these uh, guys who think that they are always going to be, you know, the Studley 11 Bravo for the rest of their, you know, existence. That that will stretch on forever. Not realizing that the day will come when they will wake up and they'll get out of bed, and they'll just naturally go, oh, as they, their feet hit the floor. It'll be part of their existence. And far too many don't make any provision for that day. Just as far too many pastors, for instance, don't make too, uh, any provision for their retirement. I had one financial manager say, I mentioned this before, he said it's almost like they're all you know, counting on the fact that Jesus will return before they retire. That's, that's their retirement plan. But that's about as uh, makes as, as much sense as, as thinking that your retirement will be handled by the fact that, of course, you're going to win the lottery in a little while. It's silliness. These things aren't planned for, and therefore they catch us unawares. But we should have seen them happening, uh, coming, rather. Well, anyway, happily, Joseph isn't fooled by the years of plenty. And neither was Pharaoh. He remembered what God had promised. And he continues to store up grain in every city, as they put it. So when the famine came in year eight, he and Egypt were ready for it. When all the people of Egypt came to Pharaoh because they had no bread, Pharaoh sent them to Joseph, and he was able to sell them grain to make bread. And therefore, because of that, because of his provision, countless families in Egypt were saved, and not only in Egypt, but throughout all the world, all of his affliction, all of that prepared him for a moment in which he would be used to save many alive. Everyone in the surrounding areas learned that despite the fact that there was famine in their own lands, there was grain in Egypt, and so they went and got it. Now, here it occurred to me, uh, as I was thinking about this, that God used exactly the right nation 
incidentally, in making provision. Why do I say that? Well, not only was Egypt blessed with uh, the agriculture and the building technology to be able to harvest the bumper crops and then to store them as they were brought forth, but also, think of this, Egypt was the premier military power in the age. Therefore, they were blessed with a military that was strong enough to defend their grain, not only from mob action by the people who might overwhelm the storehouses otherwise, or from invasion from store, uh, foreign states who were starving. A lot of people in the area would think uh, it might be easier just to load up a few ships and take the stuff rather than buying it from the Egyptians. Uh, we recently studied Romans 13 and the Anstead's Men's Fellowship, and it seems to me here we see the perfect application of what good rule should be like. To remind you of what it says in Romans 13 in verses 3 and 4, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Like a good minister, in this case, they listened to God's warnings and made preparations for the nation. Then they made provision for the people's needs and met them in the time of famine. And then finally, they bore the sword in restraining potential evildoers. If only all civil magistrates followed those rules, we would be a happier people. Now, let me ask you a question. Pharaoh listened to God's warning. Joseph certainly listened to God's warning. He'd learned that he could trust him absolutely. But the question is, and I have to ask you this today, because this is where the rubber meets the road. Do you listen to God's warnings? Have you listened to God's warnings? God's word is full of his warnings to you. Are you making provision, therefore, for your real needs while you can, while it is yet day and you're able to work? Solomon warned of the danger of living without thought for our maker in Ecclesiastes. Uh, he uh, was a man who had experienced the greatest things that the world could give in a material sense. He went through all of the things that he had pursued in Ecclesiastes. He talked about how he had pursued money, how he had pursued pleasure, how he had pursued earthly wisdom, how he had pursued skills, how he had pursued uh, riches and honor, how he pursued family and food and drink. He'd gone after all of these things. He'd, he'd dived in and, and experienced them to their full. And at the end, he sums up the reliance on them, the pursuit of them in one word. What's that word that he uses? Vanity. Hebel. He says they were all Hebel. In fact, Hebel, Hebelim. Vanity of vanities. What does vanity mean in the Hebrew? It means emptiness, vapor delusion, a mirage, something that's here today and gone tomorrow. And so he says in Ecclesiastes 12, after he's gone through his experience of, of diving in on all of these things, he reminds us, he says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And then he goes through all of these wonderful metaphors for aging and so on, the grinders referring to your teeth when they break down and so on. And then he says in verses 6 and 7 of Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator before the silver cord is loose. That's an analogy for death 
or the golden bowl is broken again, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's what's ahead for all of us. I know many of you are very young, but I've got to tell you, from the perspective of 52 years, they go by so quickly. I look and I say, where are those young kids who were running around my house playing with dinosaurs just a little while ago? Now they're running around with M4s and stuff like that. And it doesn't, and not the play ones anymore, the real ones. Everything changes, and it changes so very, very quickly. Sometimes you look back and you say, where's the time gone? It all is moving forward. You cannot stop time. We are all progressing towards what uh, Keith uh, called the river. Now, some people, admittedly, are wiser than others. There are a lot of people who don't make provision for their worldly needs. They don't prepare for their retirement. But often the case is they will prepare for their earthly needs, so they think, but not make preparation for their real needs, their spiritual needs. Now, Jesus told two parables in particular that deal with that issue. The first one is found in Luke chapter 12. I'd like you to to turn there with me if you would. Luke chapter 12. And there we're going to read about another man who had a bumper crop, as the saying uh, goes. Starting with verse 16 of chapter 12. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought to himself within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The man made provision. I mean, this is not a bad plan when you think about it. My, my barns are too small. I've got a bumper crop. I will make bigger barns. But he doesn't think about God. He doesn't think of his duties towards God in, in providing for the needs of the kingdom, the things that we spoke about this morning when we were going over Galatians 6, the need to make provision, for instance, for ministers. And then he also, he doesn't think about his spiritual needs. Ultimately, you know, what is the the great harvest going to do for him when uh, he comes to the river that we spoke of, when it comes to death? What will he do? Well, the barns aren't going to help him. The provision that he's made for himself is not going to help him. What he needed to have done was to have come for God's word. He needed to have attended upon the means of grace. He needed to have been kingdom-minded thinking about the future beyond this mortal life, but he didn't. And so he thought he would have many years. Everybody thinks that they're going to have many years. Most of the people I know who, met, uh, who died young did not expect that the day that they died would be that day. Most of them were taken completely unawares. That shouldn't be the case with you, Christians. You should know that that day is coming. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be 20 years from now, or even longer for some of us. I know that the men in my family don't live much past their 60s as a general rule. My father is a great exception to that, but I I seriously, he got to keep his hair too, it's just not fair. I seriously doubt, though, that that will be the case with me. And so therefore, I have to think seriously 
not just about my retirement, not just about insurance even, but to think, am I ready? Am I ready to stand before my God and receive my final judgment? Am I trusting in the right things? Have I stored up for my soul the things that are most necessary? And then another parable that Jesus told was in Matthew 25. And this, note this is, this is very important to remember in this particular parable, and I'll invite you all to turn to that one as well. Matthew 25 and then chapter 1, or verse 1, sorry. Note this is that the virgins are those who are invited to a wedding. These are the, essentially the bridesmaids who come alongside. In this case, they're waiting for the groom to appear, for the celebration to begin. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church. And then they will go in and they will celebrate, God willing, the wedding supper with him. But there are two groups of virgins. There are those who have oil for their lamps and those who do not. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you know uh, kind of the secret to interpreting this verse. The oil refers to the Holy Spirit. And it is something that's given to us, obviously, when we are justified, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we put our faith and trust in him. It is not something that we are automatically provided uh, with when we simply enter into the church. But note this. Both groups are in the covenant community. Both of them are members of the church. That's why this should be a sort of scary parable for us to read. I'm going to go ahead and read it, though. Matthew 25, 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, something that strikes me is the fact that whenever the word is being preached, whenever the means of grace are being distributed, there are people who are filling their lamps, people who know the Lord, who have closed with him, people who listen attentively to the word and are being filled up with the gracious oil of the Holy Spirit. And then there are others who are just sitting there. Maybe they're texting. Maybe they're thinking of what the week will bring. Maybe... I, I don't know. Maybe they're angry that once again they have to sit through another one of these sermons. When is he ever going to be finished? And why can't he ever get to 7 o'clock already? Why on earth isn't he done? He should be saying, and in conclusion. And then I could go, oh, thank you. It happens. And there are many who are like, I am here, and therefore I'm good. I'm in the room. I'm in the covenant community. I was baptized. I come to the Lord's Supper. What more do I need? I'm not hostile towards the gospel. I'm sort of looking forward to getting home and doing all the more interesting things, but, you know, I'm here. But they're not making provision for their soul. Is that you? The Lord could not warn you more clearly. He speaks to members of the covenant community. He says, I'm coming back. And the question that has to be asked here and now is, are you ready? What do you mean the Lord's coming back? Well, that's a far off, isn't it? In the meantime, I'm doing pretty well. What, what do I need? 
Well, brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming back, and at a time none of us do know. And if anybody tells you they know when the Lord is coming back, then you know exactly what label to apply to them. It is false prophet. No man knows. He could come back tonight. He could come back weeks from now. Are you ready? That's your calling, not to know when he's going to come back, but to be ready for that moment when he arrives at midnight. It may already be the 11th hour, and many, I fear, who are hearing this either here or online, their lamps are not full. They are not ready. And when he comes back, it will be too late to go back to the means of grace. You have the time, but you did not make ready. In the times of the bumper crop, you were not storing things in your storehouse. I must tell you, Jesus is the bread of heaven. He is the only one who can truly fill us and meet our needs. Have you gone out to him? You remember what Jesus, or what rather the father said of his son Jesus when he was baptized, when he was being baptized at the Jordan River? He said, this is my beloved son hear him. Who do we go to for the words of life? The answer is Christ and him alone. He is the only one who can fill us. He is the only one who can help us. He is the only one who can make provision for our ultimate need, which is salvation. If you have not yet gone to him, what are you waiting for? The days of plenty may end sooner than you think, and you have received the warning of the Lord. Heed them. And if you have, then be ready and be happy. Know that you are prepared, and no matter what happens, what affliction you go through, you will be ready for that day when all of our afflictions end. When we reach the shores of of that river and we pass through, we'll be able to go through the waves and reach the other side safely and then continue on to the heavenly city because the Lord will have made us ready, steadfast. Our lamps will be full And we will be looking forward to rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. Don't be taken unawares. There's no reason for it. Go to the Lord while there is yet time. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I thank you so much for the warnings that you give. Lord, we have heard them. I pray, Lord, that you would therefore cause us to take them to heart. Help us to stop depending upon ourselves, to stop thinking that this world will go on forever, to stop thinking that the hour of our death is not approaching. Every single day, every single moment, it gets nearer and nearer. And in that day, it isn't full barns that will avail us. It isn't having lots of skills, musical ability, wealth, honors, titles, family, any of those things. The only thing that will avail us is did we close with Christ? Are we his people? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Are we ready for glory? I pray, Lord, that everybody who hears my voice right now is ready and that they are looking forward to your return, that they will celebrate that day with loud hosannas and not call upon the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the Lamb. May it be that we jump for joy when we see the Lord approaching in the clouds, when we hear the trumpet sound, and when we are called to him. Oh, Lord, may that day of Christ's certain return come soon. And we pray these things.